Well, if you have your Bibles, um, it'd be good to open up again to Luke chapter 22. We're going to be spending uh, our time looking at verses 24 through to uh, 38 as we look at uh, this particular event towards the end of Jesus' ministry, who is the greatest. Let's pray. Our dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we do now pray that you would speak through your word this evening. Lord, show us something of ourselves. And Lord, show us our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. For we ask these things in his name. Amen. Jesus, who being in the very form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant. How do you measure greatness? Perhaps we say, well, we measure greatness by how much power someone has. Let's just take the example of the President of the United States of America. There's a lot of power he's considered great. Perhaps it's by how wealthy we are. Elon Musk is worth $197 billion. Seems pretty powerful to me. Seems pretty great. Maybe it's how good we are at something. Ronaldo, one of the world's greatest footballers. I mean, he's pretty great. What about ourselves? How do we seek greatness in our lives? If you're into social media, maybe it's how many friends or followers you have on social media. Maybe it's like when you you make a post or you, you put a video out there, you want to see how many views or how many likes you get. Is that how we seek greatness? Maybe it's how high we want to climb up the ladder at work. What about our Christian life? How do we seek greatness in our Christian life? Perhaps it's being a better speaker or preacher than somebody. Maybe it's looking at the giftings of other people that we see alongside us and we think, well, we've got to to outdo them. Maybe it's serving within the church, but really with a motive of being noticed by others. You know, as Christians, we, we so often have the wrong view of what true greatness is. You know, we, we measure greatness by world, worldly standards rather than by godly standards. And that really is the main thrust of this passage that we have before us this evening. You know, Jesus, just to recap from, from last Sunday morning, Jesus has... Uh, just told them he's about to die. He's just uh, had this Passover or, or the First Lord's Supper with them together in the upper room. And he's just dropped this bombshell around the table that somebody in this company around this table is about to betray Jesus. And we read there in verses, verse 23, just before our passage, that they began to argue amongst themselves which one of them it could be. You know, I can, I can only imagine how that sort of statement would have, I think, quite dramatically changed the atmosphere of the occasion. They've just celebrated Passover or the Lord's Supper together with Jesus, and now Jesus shares that 
piece of information that one of you around this table is going to betray me. I'm sure if, if I'd have been there, I'd have been pretty shocked by those words. And, and it's fairly reasonable, I guess, that they go into this self-defense kind of mode. And so they begin to discuss, like, who, who, is, this, who, who is this one that is going to betray our Lord? But, of course, the atmosphere continues to change. They don't, they don't stay discussing and arguing over who's going to betray. This argument shifts from who's going to be the betrayer to who is the greatest. It's actually not the first time they've had this argument or discussion. Back in Luke 9, they had that same argument about who is the greatest, and Jesus took the opportunity back then to teach them. Clearly, they haven't learned that lesson, and so we're back in this same position, his disciples arguing about who would be considered to be the greatest. And you might think, well, how does that fit? How do we go from arguing about who's going to be the betrayer to arguing about who is to be considered the greatest? Maybe you think, well, Jesus really has got a right bunch of people here, hasn't he? Maybe you should just give up. Maybe you should just find another group of followers, people that will actually get it, people that will actually understand. But he doesn't, does he? This transition from arguing about who's going to be the betrayer to arguing about who is going to be, uh, who, or who would be considered to be the greatest, it is actually a very seamless transition. You see, I think what they're trying to do is, you know, in their mindset is if we could at least just decide who is the greatest, that would remove me from the possibility of being a betrayer. Because if I could be considered great, then I cannot be a betrayer. And it's interesting, therefore, how Jesus then deals with the disciples. Just before we get there, I just just want to make a brief pausing remark by word of Warning, I guess, to myself and to, to, to you listening in uh, this evening. It would be very easy, wouldn't it, to read this and to think, well, I can't believe what I'm reading. Here are Jesus' disciples, his inner circle of friends. They've been with him for three and a bit years. They know him well. They've listened to his teaching. They've, They've been with him through all the difficulties, the trials, the confrontations, the cross-examinations of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They've been with him through all of those things. And then we say, well, how on earth can they be now arguing over such worldly things? Especially given that they are in the immediate presence of Jesus. And it might be easy to think think that and and to wonder why we would be in this place and why they would be discussing these things. But yet we need to remind ourselves, don't we, that so often we too are like these disciples. We find ourselves arguing over trivial things, discussing and getting involved with worldly things. You know, whether or not we consciously think it all of the time, If the truth be told, really, in the depths of all of our hearts, we do want to be great, don't we? We want to be acknowledged by people. We want to be regarded by people. We want to be approved by people. We want to be noticed. Maybe if you're a preacher, one of the temptations over this lockdown is how many views you get on your YouTube channel. Maybe we serve, but we want people to know what we're doing. We compare ourselves to others. 
We might not be visibly arguing as we see these disciples doing verbally, but in the depths of our hearts, we do have that same kind of struggle that goes on. And so as we look at these disciples, can I issue that warning? That before we point too much at them, let's examine our own hearts before God. We're back here with Jesus in this passage and his disciples. We almost begin to wonder, well, how would Jesus deal with these disciples? If you can picture the scene, I mean, I picture it like this, that Jesus is still there standing around the table and these disciples are in this mass little debate about what is going on and who is to be considered the greatest. How is Jesus going to control this rabble and bring this argument to an end? Maybe he'd say something like this, well, John, you're pretty great. Peter, you know, you're not, you're not bad, but you're not the greatest. If you did a bit more work, you might be okay. No, Jesus doesn't do that, does he? Jesus doesn't go down any of those routes. No, Jesus takes the opportunity to teach his disciples two things. Firstly, verses 25 to 27, that there are two types of greatness. There are two types of greatness. It is the head-to-head moment. Here are the two types of greatness that Jesus presents. There is worldly greatness and there is gospel greatness. What does worldly greatness look like? Well, Jesus begins there in verse 25. Really, we can sum up Jesus' words in that verse by using one word. Pride. That is what worldly greatness looks like. Pride. You see, in Jesus' day, greatness was measured by how many servants you had waiting on you. It was measured by whereabouts you sat at a meal. The closer you were to the host, the greater you were. And if you were lucky enough to find yourself on the host's table, then you would firstly want to be sitting on their right. If that was not an option, you'd want to be on their left, and so on. In other words, worldly greatness is about how high you can climb. It doesn't matter who you throw off the ladder in the meantime. It doesn't matter who you trample on, as long as you can keep climbing and eventually get to the top. Jesus uses the example of these Gentile kings who consider themselves to be benefactors. They lord it over those to whom they have authority. Their greatness was measured by how much they achieved. Their their greatness was measured by the amount of power and authority that they had over others. They could order anyone to be executed with no reason at all. And so Jesus says, this is what worldly greatness looks like. But secondly, under this, he then presents what gospel greatness looks like. Verse 26. What does gospel greatness look like? Whoever is the greatest should become like the youngest, Jesus says. And whoever leads, whoever governs, should be like the one who serves. As you read that description from Jesus... Maybe you ask this question, are you sure? Are you sure, Jesus? I mean, that doesn't really sound too much like greatness to me. See, what was Jesus really saying? Well, he was saying two things. Firstly, he says, the one who considers themselves to be great should become like one who is inferior. That is what that illustration of the youngest means. The youngest in Jesus' days, they were given inferior positions. What is Jesus' point? One word again, humility. 
If worldly greatness is about pride, then gospel greatness is about humility. Secondly, he says, the one who leads or the one who governs should be like the one who serves. Surely, Jesus, that is the wrong way round. That can't be right, Jesus. You mean to say that the one who is in a position of leadership should become like the one who serves? That doesn't seem to make sense. You mean to say that the master of the house should be willing to stoop down to the depths and, and the lowness of his servant, his household servant? And we say, yes, that is what Jesus is saying. What is Jesus' point? It is about humility. So if worldly greatness is about how high you can get, gospel greatness is about how, how low you are willing to go. And I think Jesus is trying to make that point very, very clear. Gospel greatness is self-forgetfulness rather than self-promotion. I always remember an experience that I had when I was uh, out in the USA, when I was uh, working as a, a youth leader on that summer camp, Christian summer camp. There was a guy, he was the, the main director. He, he's, he's taught me a lot, actually, over the years. He's taught me a lot in my time when I was over there as I observed him, as I observed his leadership style and how he interacted at different levels of the camp. He was the highest person in authority on that camp. Every day he had meetings with big directors of the whole organisation. He made big financial decisions about where the money would be spent, about how the camp would operate. And on any, any given summer, he had about eight or 900 staff members under his authority. Yet several times a week, I would observe where I would find him. When the kitchen staff were stretched, when there wasn't enough people to get the job done, where was he? He was loading the dishwasher. He was dealing with dirty plates. He never did it to get peop for people to notice him. In fact, if he was listening in this evening, he would be horrified that I've used him as an illustration. He never ever said to people, I've just spent three hours in the dish pit. He simply got on with the job that needed doing, whatever that might be. See, I think that's something of a demonstration of gospel greatness. It's, it means that as a, as a leader, perhaps of a local church or, or a leader at any level or any organization, we should be willing to be servants. It means as a, as a leader of a ministry area within the church or, or outside of church, we should be willing first to be servants. It means as members of a local church, our first and primary motivation should be that of a servant. I remember a pastor once telling me that he identifies his future leaders on a Sunday morning. He said, I'd wait till the service had finished and I would look out and I would observe who it was that had stayed behind, who it was that was picking up the hymn books, clearing away the disused notice sheets, putting away the chairs without being asked. You know, the ironic thing about this passage is as this dispute amongst the disciples began, the one who modelled true greatness was standing in their presence. You know, it's not specifically mentioned here in Luke, but it is in John. 
that Jesus had just washed their feet before the meal. Jesus has just served them at the table. And that is why I think Jesus pushes the issue even more in verse 27. Maybe Jesus is trying just to see if his disciples have truly got it. Do you understand what I'm trying to teach you, disciples? For, he, for, who, for who is greater, the one at the table or the one serving? Surprise, surprise, Jesus, as he teaches, asks them a question. Jesus often did that, didn't he? Asked questions of those he was trying to teach. Who is greater? Tell me this. Who is greater, the one who is seated at the table or the one who serves? The ironic thing about all of this is this is a real-life illustration. The disciples are sitting at a table and Jesus is serving But of course, for the disciples in their culture, this was a very easy question to answer. Of course, it's the one that's sitting at the table. That would have been the accepted response. That is why Jesus, I think, puts that forward as an option. Isn't it the one at the table? The disciples would have had no reason to doubt that. They would have been fully on board with that. Until they realized who the one was that was serving And it must have been a real sting in their tail, really. Jesus says, I am among you as the one who serves. I don't know about you, maybe there was a, as you think about that, maybe there was a moment of silence in that room. Maybe it took a few moments for the penny to drop. And as the mind started to whirl, the disciples suddenly realized that they were at the table. They were arguing about greatness. And Jesus has just told them that true greatness is about serving. And we are here at the table being served by Jesus. You see, in that moment, none of them would have had any reason to dispute who was the greatest in that room. You see, bringing Jesus into the picture takes them out of the running for any form of greatness. Jesus was far greater than they. And yet by this very illustration that Jesus uses, he illustrates that he is also the one who serves. So why does Jesus give these two contrasts of these two types of greatness? We'll look at verse 26, the beginning of it. I think this is the key verse. Jesus presents these two contrasts of greatness. Here's the worldly greatness and here's the gospel greatness. And Jesus says, you are not to strive after worldly greatness. There is no question in Jesus' mind. Look at the way he says it. It is not to be like that among you. This description of worldly greatness must not be present in your attitude. A follower of Jesus will not strive after these things. And make it even more pointed you will not even entertain arguments over worldly things. Jesus is the servant king. Jesus sets the example for how they should behave towards each other. Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, 
but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant. So if there's two types of greatness, it follows, therefore, in verses 29 to 30, that there are two types of rewards. Worldly rewards are limited to that which the world can give. If you live for people's praise, then you will get people's praise, sometimes. If you live for people's approval, then that is all you will get. If you try to climb as high as you can in your life, in your work, in your family, then the rewards you will get will be for now, they'll be temporary, they'll be momentary, they'll be passing. The president of the USA gets their power for four or eight years. Elon Musk gets to enjoy his wealth for a time. But what does Jesus say about the rewards for gospel greatness? We'll look down there at verse 29. I give you a kingdom, just like my Father has given to me. In this kingdom you will eat and drink at my table, and you will reign with me. My paraphrase. So we have a momentary passing temporary reward that is restricted to what this world can give you and what this world can offer. Or we have the eternal reward of an eternal kingdom where you will eat and drink at the table with Jesus and you will reign with him. Not based on earthly greatness. Not based on how high you can climb in this world. But based on gospel greatness. Based on genuine humility. Demonstrated not in how high you can climb, but how low you are willing to go for the gospel. Are we living for an eternal reward? Is that the, is that the view that we have in our viewfinder as we serve Jesus? As we serve at home, at work, in the church? Is that the view that we have? Is that the mindset that we do everything for? For that eternal reward and eternal kingdom? It is far greater than any earthly reward we could ever achieve. Don't get caught up in silly worldly disputes that really do not count anything in eternity. Set our minds on things above. So why do we need to be in this mindset? Why do we need to be those who live out this type of gospel greatness? Why is Jesus so keen to teach and to make this point to his disciples that you are not to be like the world? You are not to strive after worldly greatness. Here's the reason. Because following Jesus is tough. See, Jesus is preparing his disciples in this moment for his imminent departure. And the journey ahead for his disciples are going to be difficult. These next few days are going to be incredibly difficult as Jesus goes to the cross And we see something of this played out, don't we, as we see Jesus' encounter with Peter. You see, a life that seeks worldly greatness, that places all the emphasis on living in your own strength with a proud heart, will not stand, cannot hope to stand. And we see here as we reach verse 31, it's a, really, it's, a, it's a really quick shift from what Jesus has just been talking about. Suddenly Jesus is talking about eternal rewards and eternal kingdom. And then suddenly, verse 31, Simon, Simon, look out. Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you. 
Satan has asked permission to knock you about like wheat, to sift you, to see if you will stand. See, pursuing worldly greatness means living in your own strength, thinking that we're great on our own. And if that is the case, it might mean that you are sifted and will not stand. But isn't it wonderful that Jesus doesn't just give that warning, he gives a wonderful encouragement. But I have prayed for you. It's actually more powerful in the Greek. I'm not going to read the Greek to you, but this is what the Greek equivalent says in English. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you all like wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon. I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith will not fail. sad thing is Peter doesn't really get it, does he? He doesn't really get it. He hasn't given enough time probably for all those words to sink in, all those truths that Jesus has said to really sink into his mind. And that really is the response of worldly greatness still, isn't it? My faith will never fail, Jesus. I'm too great for that, maybe Peter's thinking subliminally in his mind. I'm prepared to go with you wherever you will go, to prison or to death. In another gospel account, Peter Peter says, even if everybody else fall away, I will stay. Imagine hearing those words from Jesus. Peter, before the rooster crows, you are going to deny me three times. No, Jesus, never. I will never do that, Jesus. See what Peter, I think, is really saying probably not intentionally, is I'm too great to abandon you, Jesus. My faith is too strong and my love is too strong for me to ever contemplate denying you. But it's really just a heart that is full of pride. As the saying goes, pride comes before a fall and that is exactly what happened. Not long later, not long after this conversation ends, Peter finds himself in the courtyard He's warming himself by the fire. And before he knows it three times, he is denied he ever knew Jesus. And then the rooster crows. And the account here in Luke says that as the rooster crowed, Jesus' gaze met Peter's gaze. And in that moment, Peter is reminded that following Jesus is tough. And he's humbled as he fails. Following Jesus is tough. And we might wonder why Peter did that. But the truth is that we are more like Peter than we ever really imagine, aren't we? Maybe we've said it ourselves. My faith is too strong to fall away from Jesus. My love for Jesus is too strong to ever even contemplate denying Jesus. There was a guy at church I once attended and he said this to me, I will never ever fall away from Jesus because my faith is too strong. What a dangerous thing to say. But I think it's somewhere what Peter was hinting at. And sometimes it's what we can think. I've been a Christian for 60, 70 years. There's no way I'll deny Jesus. There's no way I'll fall away now. And Jesus says to you tonight, he says, Satan has asked to sift you all. 
But I have prayed for you, John. I've prayed for you, Steve. I've prayed for you, Chris. I've prayed for you, Ben. Put your name in that space. Jesus prays for his people. He knows you by name. And if it was tough for Peter, it was going to be tough for them all. I'm not going to go into verses 35 to 38, but in essence, Jesus in that section is preparing them for what would be ahead. And Jesus does that by reminding them that as he has sent them out in the past, have they ever lacked anything? No, is the response. And Jesus says, just like you've never ever lacked anything in the past, know that I am with you always as you live for me. Of course, these disciples didn't really get it still. But they were good men. They were faithful men. And the wonderful thing is, Jesus didn't give up on them, did he? He still sought to teach them. He prepared them for what was ahead, and he promised to be with them always. So I wonder what type of greatness are you living for this evening? What attitude are we living our life by this evening? Jesus says very clearly, we are not to strive after worldly greatness. Because you are not like the world. You have been taken from the world. And the way ahead is tough. And the only way that you can hope to stand, the only way that you can hope to go forward, is if you follow my example, says Jesus. So what does life with a mindset of gospel greatness look like? It is not found in grasping as much as you can but rather in selfless, sacrificial giving, in service. As we think about these things, maybe ask yourself this question, am I living for my own little kingdom? Or am I living in the light of God's big kingdom? However we answer that question will shape and mould how we view greatness. It will shape and mould the type of greatness that we are looking for. Maybe if the truth be told this evening, you might be happy to call yourself a servant, and I speak to myself as much as I speak to you. You may be happy to call yourself a servant until people treat you like a servant. Maybe we say, well, I'm happy to to, to serve without receiving praise until that moment that someone does not give you praise. See, gospel greatness is seen in our willingness to serve. Wherever that might be, and whatever might be required. It is worked out in our relationships with one another. When a job needs doing at church, do we say, well, it's not my job, it's, it's actually it's beneath me. At school, it means rather than, than perhaps siding with those who are bullying somebody, you go and you sit down with someone who is being bullied and you sit with them. At work, it means we don't dominate those to whom we manage. But if required, we are willing to step in to lighten their workloads. There is no act of service in the church of Jesus Christ that we have any right to say, I will not do it. Why? Because Jesus, who is high over all, emptied himself for you. What kind of greatness can this be that chose to be made small, exchanging untold majesty for a world so pitiful that he should come as one of us, I will never understand.
And so the conclusion to this argument about greatness is silenced with Jesus. True greatness is the opposite of the world's greatness. And it looks like this. And it is modeled like this. Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is true gospel greatness. Let's pray. Our dear Father, we thank you and praise you for your word. We thank you for the reminders this evening. We thank you for the, the truth and the reality of this account that we've seen with the disciples. We thank you that we can relate in some way to what is going on here. But we do pray that as we relate, that we would not be content to stay. That we would allow you to work in our hearts. That you would give us the desire to pursue true gospel greatness as we look to Jesus. For we ask these things in his name. Amen. We're going to close our time together by singing... Blessed be your name.
much time later, Peter eventually got it when he wrote these words. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your cares on him, because he cares for you. Amen.